Great to be with you all this evening. I'm Gareth, I'm one of the ministers here at All Saints, and we're going to be continuing a series in 1 Peter, and this evening thinking about the theme of being confident in our witness, and particularly in suffering, and we'll find throughout our lives, particularly as Christians, that there is a lot of suffering that we will find ourselves in, and we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, which if you want to grab a Bible and turn to page 1219. And just whilst you're turning there to 1 Peter chapter 3, I've noticed over the years that one of the games that people like to play in church circles is to kind of justify being lukewarm by normalizing it uh, and just kind of referring to themselves as a normal Christian. I don't know if you've noticed this, but you know, they, they will see someone who's really on fire for Christ, they're a really uh, committed Christian, and, and that person will kind of refer to that person as being a radical Christian or a fundamentalist Christian. You know, oh, she's a, she's a bit more of a radical Christian. Instead of actually looking at that person and feeling challenged, I'm thinking, wow, I really need to up my game. I really need to read my Bible more. I need to pray. I need to be more zealous in my worship. I need to really be more consistent in my faith. It's just kind of, oh, well, they're just more radical. I'm more normal. You know, I kind of just like to Christianize my life by going to church on a Sunday. And then during the rest of the week, there's nothing that really marks my life out as being different or being obedient to Christ The only thing that kind of marks me out as being a Christian is I go to church on Sunday, maybe I have a few Christian friends and I like to listen to Jesus culture sometimes in the car. There's nothing that's really kind of like, wow, they really stand out. And so someone like that is just not going to suffer for their faith because nobody outside of church even knows that they're a Christian. You You can avoid persecution if you just hide your faith. And another game that people like to play is to kind of just denounce biblical Christianity. If you like, just kind of take a pair of scissors to the Bible and cut out all the verses they don't like. You know, just kind of this revisionist approach to the Bible and saying, well, the Bible doesn't really mean that. It doesn't really say that. The Bible says whatever the culture wants it to say because I don't want to be called a bigot. I don't want to be singled out for criticism. I don't know, you, you may have seen on, on social media and Twitter, whatever, you'll often see people and often sometimes even some church leaders kind of virtue signaling some really liberal views that really contradict what orthodox Christianity teaches in order to kind of be accepted by the culture and get approval and, and not to be marked out for any criticism or persecution. But scripture is very clear, so when we argue with it, the problem is not with scripture, it is with us. And just before we look at this, I just want to give a few examples of moral issues where our culture says one thing, but actually when we look at what the Bible teaches, it tells us something very differently. So first of all, it's just just to look at the issue of homosexuality and sexual immorality in our culture. And our culture will say, the world will say, you have the right to express your sexuality however you want to. That's kind of what our culture says. But actually, if you look at what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it says, A man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Marriage is between a man and a woman. A sexual union is, the only place for that is between a man and a woman in marriage. Anything outside of that is sin. So all homosexual acts are sin. A sexual relationship between a man and a woman who are not married is fornication, which is also sin. The world also says 
With transgenderism, the world says, if you're unhappy in your gender, you just need to change your gender, just have a sex change. But again, if we look at what the Bible teaches, and we look in Genesis 1 verse 27, it says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. Notice that in the image of God is in that verse twice. It's God who decides our gender. It is, it is God who has a, a perfect purpose and, and design in the way that we're created. In fact, the way that you are, your character, your personality, your gender is part of God's design. But because of the distortion of sin, people can be confused uh, about their, their gender and have a, a gender identity crisis. And for that person, we want to walk with them and love them and help them in that and, and actually lead them to healing and to see that Christ can deliver you from that. But the answer is never to change your gender, to have a sex change. And there's also the fact that a very large proportion who, of people who, ha, who go through a sex change live to regret it and realize they've made a mistake. Then there's abortion, and the world says it's a woman's right to do whatever she wants with her body, and a fetus is just part of her body. But if we look at what the Bible teaches in Psalm 139, for you created my inmost being. You created my inmost being. That's the soul. That's the essence of who you are. That's what makes you you. You're not just an intelligent animal. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. By definition, abortion is taking a human life, which by definition is murder. Let us not forget that it was the fetus of John the Baptist that leapt at the news of Jesus Christ. And one more, euthanasia. And there's that argument that someone who is, who is in a lot of pain at the end of their life, and it is, I've seen people in suffering at the end of their life, and it's heartbreaking to see. And there is that temptation that maybe we could just help that person die more humanely. But again, in the Bible it says in the book of Job, a person's days are determined. You have decreed their lifespan. It's never our right to help someone to die, even if it may seem like an act of compassion. And so the Bible makes it clear that these, what, these things are wrong, and yet the Bible also talks about forgiveness. And if any of these things really kind of, kind of make you feel convicted or make you feel bad, know that actually Christ welcomes you. So be, you're forgiven. Come and receive forgiveness if you re- repent and come to him. But it's a very dangerous game to try and redefine what the Bible teaches us about sin. And so again, persecution for Christians, can be avoided if we just compromise on the truth, if we're not clear about what the Bible says. The reality is, is as Christians, if we stay faithful to what the Bible teaches, if we hold on to that, it's going to hurt us because the pressure is always on us to compromise and to condone the godlessness of our age and the culture that we're in. But when we speak truth into our culture, we'll suffer for it. I love that saying, speak the truth even if your voice shakes. We're called to stand up for the truth. And so in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, and Peter is, is addressing a group of churches here who are suffering for their faith. They're being faithful in their faith. I'm just going to start reading from verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is good, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. 
Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Verse 13 starts off with the apostle kind of arguing, kind of simple logic really. He's saying that really if you're a good, if you're a good righteous person, if you're kind to people, then it's a lot harder for them to be nasty to you. That's kind of like basic logic. If we're kind to people, if we treat people with respect, there is that common grace that people are not going to want to attack us as much. But he says, but even if you are badly treated, even if people do attack you for your faith, remember that the Lord is on your side and he's against them. The Apostle Paul said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Our confidence comes from that. If God is for me, who can be against me? And that's why Peter says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear any of their threats. Do not be frightened. Because if your desire is to please God rather than man, then your eternal reward will come from man. The only reward that you get for pleasing other people is some temporary kudos. And to be honest, people normally forget the good things you've done. But God never forgets how we've suffered for him. He remembers eternally what what we've done and how we've suffered. So when we suffer for what is right, it's counted to us eternally. It will never be lost. How short-sighted it is when Christians try to just do what seems right in the culture in order to get some temporary kudos. To just to compromise on the truth, to fit in with the liberal culture in order to, to not face any backlash or persecution. That's why Peter says, do not fear any of their threats. What's the worst thing that can happen, really? In fact, the worst thing that can happen cannot happen. If you're in Christ, you cannot lose God's love for you. You're always loved eternally by God. So ultimately, it doesn't matter what happens to you in this life. And that's how Peter's encouraging them. It doesn't really matter ultimately what happens in this life. It doesn't matter what people say to you. It doesn't matter what they do to you. God is on your side. So when you have that kind of godly courage, it it helps you in your witness. It helps you to speak up and share your faith with others. And he goes on in verse 15 to say, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. In fact, the word that that he's using here, Peter, the the Greek word for answer or defense is apologion, which is where we get the word apologetics from. Apologetics is really the the discipline of, of arguing for a defense for the Christian faith defending the Christian faith against objections and and being able to explain how science and philosophy do not disprove God. That's why we run the life course here. We just want to give people the opportunity to come in and bring their objections and to answer them. But that's not what Peter is saying here. Peter's just really talking about being able to give an explanation and a defense for your faith, to be able to witness. This is about your own personal witness. Now the question is, If someone was to ask you this evening, why are you a Christian? Do you know how you would answer them? Do you have a testimony that you would share with someone? If they said, so why are you a Christian? Why why should I follow Christ? How would you respond to that? Why is Christ so important to you? Can you share the gospel clearly with someone? 
Because we do need to be able to witness to others. That's why we, we kind of run empowered events. So we, we want to be able to learn how to share our faith. But also we go out into the streets. Because if you can go up to a stranger in the street and just start sharing the gospel with them, that makes it a lot easier when you kind of go into your place of work and you, and you go and see your friends and you share your faith. It's just helping us to have the confidence to do that. So Peter's saying it's important to share our faith. But he also says it's not just sharing our faith, but how we share our faith matters and is important. With gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. There are two really important things that we need to have to accompany our personal witness. The first thing is personal purity and integrity. Personal purity and integrity. Do we have a clear conscience before God? Or are there some rather shady areas in our lives that contradict our hope in Christ? Just for example, how can we testify to others that Christ has fully delivered us from evil human desires when we're still looking at pornography, which is a sexual sin? How can we talk about the love of Christ when we're slandering and gossiping about others? How can we talk about the freedom that comes from having an identity in Christ when we're just utterly obsessed with our appearance and what people think about us and and being full of pride and vanity? Do our inner lives match up to our witness? Now, I'll be honest, there there were several years and only a few years ago, I actually finally overcame the issue I had with, with anger and pride and, and resentment and unforgiveness, it all kind of just kind of came together and it was, it was ruining my life, it was ruining my ministry and I remember at theological college, I was just so angry, I just wanted an argument with anyone, it didn't matter if they were a Christian or non-Christian, if they were a Christian I'd just argue about theology, if they were a non-Christian I'd just argue about the existence of God. Has anyone seen that Monty Python sketch, argument, you know, can I have an argument sketch? I mean that was actually me. Like, if you, that was literally what it was like. I was just looking at who can I have an argument with, because I enjoyed it. And <laughs> there was an anger there where a pride, there's a mixture of pride and anger, and, and then there'd be unforgiveness, so I'd get, I'd get angry with, with something that someone had done for me, and I couldn't forgive them. And the reality was that that was just holding me back so much because there wasn't any love there. That, that, that anger was turning to hate. That anger was becoming toxic, and it was, it was a combination, if I'm honest, of, of a lot of ministry and also uh, Christian counseling to get free from that. Because the reality is, I could not share my faith properly because I was full of so much anger and so much resentment and so much pride. I couldn't be humble. You've got to be humble. You can't be full of pride and share the love of Christ. We have to deal with our junk. But actually, that's what, I believe that's what God wants us to do this evening, whatever's in the way. And stopping us from being able to just freely witness and, and be able to share our faith with others. And then there's being gracious and loving. Secondly, are we being gracious and loving in the way that we share the gospel as I wasn't when I, as I struggled with anger and pride? If you think about it, the, the gospel itself is offensive. So we have to be very gentle and compassionate in the way that we share our faith and share the gospel. And Peter goes on to say, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. 
Are we ready to dignify the persecution and and the clear injustice that we have to suffer because of our Christian faith? Can we dignify that? Because when you look at how Jesus was treated and then you look at your own suffering, you start to realize it all makes sense. I'm just going to carry on reading from verse 18 where it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits to those who were disobedient long ago, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. A great man called A.W. Tozer, some of you have probably heard of him, he was a pastor uh, used very powerfully by God in the mid-20th century And when he was a young pastor, he went to his mentor, Dr. Schumann, and he said to his mentor that he wanted to love God more than anyone loved God in his generation. Is that not just the most awesome desire to have? What's your aspiration in life? I just want to love God more than anybody else. You don't often hear people saying that, really. You hear people kind of saying, I want to achieve this, I want to do that. It's quite rare that you hear someone say, man, I just want to love God more than anybody else. But that's what Tozer said to his mentor. And his mentor, Dr. Schumann, said to him very wisely, he said, Brother Tozer, if that is the true desire of your heart, I have one word of caution. Prepare yourself to suffer greatly. If we really love Jesus, we are going to suffer. Prepare yourself to suffer. Peter, who wrote this letter, was crucified upside down. Following Christ faithfully means we are going to suffer But what is unique in Christian suffering is that there's a great joy in suffering. I love it in the book of Acts. We see when the apostles, they'd been arrested by the Jewish officials and they'd taken a beating and and, and they'd been charged and they left the council and they were rejoicing that that they'd been counted worthy to suffer for Christ. The apostles just went out there thinking, oh, I just took a hell of a beating there. Thank God, because I must be doing something right. I'm standing up for the truth. I'm standing up for Christ. It's actually an honor to suffer for Christ because he suffered for us. If you're looking for a tagline to share the gospel, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Christ who was crushed under the weight of our sin. And and on that cross, instead of us, he was separated from his father so that you and I could be forgiven and reconciled with God. Christ suffered in order that we could be forgiven. Yes, we'll suffer in this life, but because Christ suffered, we share not only in Christ's suffering, but in his victory, made alive in the Spirit. So we now have the Holy Spirit living in us and the hope of being raised to eternal life. And Peter goes on, and in the next few verses at the end of this chapter, there's some of the most mysterious and widely contested verses Um, which if you want to flick back to Genesis 6, you can just check that I'm not just making it all up. 
But in the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, there's an account of the flood uh, and the, the, the lead up to the flood that, that God sends in the time of Noah. And at the beginning of chapter 6 in Genesis, there's something rather sinister that's going on. And it describes these angelic beings that are referred to as the sons of God. And they looked down on the earth and they lusted after the women. And they came down to earth, took some of the women as wives and had children with them. This, that this uh, then led to these uh, kind of hybrid angelic beings which, were, which grew into giants. And they are what referred to as the Nephilim. Nephilim literally comes from the Hebrew verb, ne- verb nephal, which means to fall. So these are literally fallen ones. And these are the spirits that, that Peter is referring to, the, in, uh, the, the imprisoned spirits. And you kind of think, well, what's that got to do with anything? Well, the point is this. Christ has the victory over sin and death and the demonic realm, all of it. The devil's been defeated and Christ proclaims victory in the spiritual realm as well. That's why Christ goes and and proclaims that message of victory over all of the spiritual realm. The Apostle Paul talks about the manifold wisdom of God being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Christ has the victory. He has the victory over sin and death and everything. And so going back to this illustration that Peter uses of Noah's family in in the ark, safe from God's judgment that's being rained down on, on earth in the form of the flood. So Christian baptism is a picture of Christ rescuing us out of death and judgment. And that's what's happening on the earth in the time of Noah. So when, when we're baptized, we are, being, we are standing up to give that testimony of being saved from judgment and brought into life and into relationship with God. In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to have a baptism service here at All Saints in this evening service. And you know, every time someone stands up and gives their testimony, they're retelling that story of salvation in a very personal way to them. They're saying, this is true for me. This is true in my life. This is how Christ saved me. As they share their own individual story. Say, if you're here this evening and you haven't been baptized, it's a great opportunity to, to not only share with the community of faith, everyone here, but also bring your friends who don't know Christ and witness to them. This is what God has done in my life. But lastly, before we move on from the flood, there's just one more thing I just want to bring up. And it's not actually in 1 Peter, but it's in Genesis chapter 9. And at the end of the flood, when God brings Noah and his family to dry land, God puts a rainbow in the sky. And that is a rainbow of, of a sign of God's mercy that he would no longer judge the earth again in that way. He would no longer punish the earth in that way. That rainbow is a beautiful sign of God's mercy that he would never punish the world in that way again. And yet that rainbow is now used as a sign of pride for that which God has forbidden. Can you see the link that there's, there's no coincidence? We're either, we're either slaves to Christ or to sin. There's no such thing as being spiritually neutral. We're called to live differently. I'm just reading on from chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body has finished with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human desires, but rather for the will of God. 
For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. There is a a choice that every single person on this earth has to make, and that's whether or not they're going to suffer for Christ in this life or reject him and suffer for eternity in the next. And that's the choice. Either we live to do the will of God or we're living the rest of our lives satisfying human desires. And that's what Peter means in verse 6. He says the gospel was preached to those who received it and believed it. Even though they were physically dead and they died, they would be raised to eternal life. So people heard the gospel were saved. They physically died, but they'd be raised to eternal life. Physical death was not the end for them. But there are many people who they will choose to just live this life for themselves. And they'll be driven by their own evil human desires. And they'll one day have to stand in front of God on that day of judgment And they have to give an account of why they live their life in that way. Mark's gospel in Mark 8 says, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? That's the choice everyone has to make. Deny yourself and follow Christ and suffer in this life. Or deny Christ, follow your own desires and suffer in the lake of fire in eternity. It's a terrible thing that there's this choice. And how do we respond to this? And Peter tells us, arm ourselves with the same attitude as Christ. To arm yourselves with the same attitude as Christ. You know, when the military go to war, they don't bring toy weapons with them. That's just ridiculous. You don't see the the military going in with like some toy machine gun, hoping that people will be scared and run off. It's absurd. But what's even more ridiculous is us thinking that by our own willpower, that we can defeat the devil and all of those evil human desires that are in us. We can't defeat our flesh by our own willpower. We cannot just avoid those desires on our own. The way that we defeat them is by being done with sin and so saturated with the love of Christ and and having God's word living in us and stored in our hearts. So when the worldly temptation comes our way, we're we're ready to spot it from a mile off and be prepared to resist it. You know, when when you love Christ so much that some temptation comes your way, you're just like, Satan, is that the best you can do? Some rancid temptation that you think that you can pull me away from my Savior? That the things of this world just kind of become thin and rancid and and they just don't pull us away from Christ because we love him more. 
It's all about where your heart is. If you love Christ, you'll not be pulled away from him. But if you love the world, you'll always be ticed away by worldly things. When we desire to obey God, we will not fall into temptation. The evangelist Paul Washer, he says, Jesus did not defeat the devil in those 40 days in the wilderness because he he quoted scripture at the devil. He defeated the devil by obeying the scripture that he quoted at the devil. If we desire to do the will of God more than anything else, we'll not give in to evil worldly desires that everyone else is indulging in. They're ignorant of God and they don't know any different. They don't see the spiritual danger that they're putting themselves into. And Peter also warns, the end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind that you may pray. Another challenge this evening, I want to ask, how much do we pray? How much time do we spend in prayer? Whether that's on your own or getting a few others and just spending an evening praying together. Just being spiritually alert, being prayerful, listening to what God wants to say to you. Asking God for wisdom and insight. Cluttering out all the noise, all the entertainment, all the distractions. There are actually, in many ways, the devil's playing a blinder and keeping us from actually listening to God. The church is often asleep. And, and Peter warns, in fact, we see this twice in, in chapter, uh, chapter 4. He says, be alert and of sober mind. And he says it again in chapter 5, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Just earlier this week, I was, I was just praying and uh, just had a picture, which I think was for this evening. And it was really the with all the rain and we've had all the rains and storms but I had a, a picture of kind of water coming, coming through and like the roof leaking and water kind of coming through the church roof and water being all over the floor and getting into the place and I just felt it was a warning not to let worldliness leak into us as a church not to let worldliness leak into our lives not to be compromised and Jesus says in, as he prays for the disciples in John 17 he says my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. And God's, I believe what God wants to say to us is, I want you to be truly sanctified. I want you to be holy and set apart. I want you to be different. I want you to live differently. And to, and to just walk uh, set apart for him. I've said enough, why don't we all just stand and in the moment I'll invite the, the band to come forward. But just as we stand, I just want to wait for the Holy Spirit and there's a couple of things I just want to share before we come into a time of response.